Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to announce the continuation of Backstage Babble's series celebrating the shows of 2023 with my interview with playwright Shar White, whose play Pictures from Home is currently running at Studio 54, starring Nathan Lane and Danny Burstein. It's a fantastic and moving play, and I highly recommend going before it closes on April 30th. In addition to this, Shar has been represented on Broadway by The Other Place and The Snow Geese, and his off-Broadway plays include The True, which starred Edie Falco, Annapurna, which starred Megan Mullally, Achilles in Sparta, and Six Years. On TV, he has been a writer and producer for Halston, The Affair, Generation, and more. And now, without further ado, here's Shar White. Oh, of course, well, I love pictures from home, so. Oh, thank you. Yeah. When did you see it? Did you see it early in the run? Yes, very early. I think like the second or third night, actually. Wow. Okay. Really early. <laughs> Have there yeah. been changes made since then? Or <laughs> no, I mean, actually, well, yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, if you'd seen it by the third preview, then well, yeah, we made plenty of changes, not not huge ones, but but um, there's sort of there were a couple of runs. Um, uh, there was sort of like a couple of runs of scenes in in the latter portion of the play that we we needed we needed a little bit of humor in so so we had we had cut an earlier scene that we put back in and that that helped a lot so we, you know we Bart shared as a lot of work in previews so um yeah i mean but no, i mean nothing thunderous you know right right yeah. yeah well so i'd love to um formally start by asking how did you first become interested in theater and and writing Oh, wow. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, boy, I mean, I always sort of wanted to be an actor when I was a kid and I, I didn't really commit that much. And I graduated high school and I didn't apply to college, which was dumb. I had extenuating family um, circumstances. Uh, so I, I worked at a warehouse for a year after high school and then I went to junior college and I thought like, well, maybe I want to be a biologist. And um, and I also started just taking some acting classes on campus. This is at Orange Coast Community College in in um, Southern California, um, and I just I just fell in love with this. Like you know, I mean, this theater it was like a bunch of freaks and misfits and like hilarious people, and um, and I thought you know this is maybe what I want to do. And and then and then somebody said, oh well, you should go to ACT in San Francisco, as if that's just sort of like the easiest thing in the world to do. And so I very naively moved to San Francisco and I audited some classes at um, San Francisco State. And uh, I do, was doing a lot of, you know, acting classes up there too. And um, I, yeah, I auditioned at ACT and and I got in, which is ridiculous because um, I was like 20, you know? So um, yeah, that was the beginning. And, and then when I was there, when I was there, I started writing for my friends in, the, in that program. 
um, let me see, I, that was 1991 to 1993. So I was writing for friends of mine, monologues and a couple of scenes. And, and I thought, you know, I don't know, this is, this is maybe something I, I really want to do. I had no idea how to do it. Um, and then of course, when I moved to New York, uh, I, you know, quickly learned that like, you can't just wake up and act. <laughs> How how can you be how can you be uh, active you know and and creative on a daily basis and and for me that was writing you know I could roll out of bed and 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 write and create and and so that's that's where it all began or maybe that's where my troubles began <laughs> so um, yeah and so to go back a little bit was your family supportive of your sort of passion for theater or were people around you generally. Uh, yes. Well, yes. I mean, I, I'm, I come from a very odd family. I mean, there was, there, I've got a brother and four sisters and, um, it was a pretty like horrible divorce situation. And so wow. much, you know, we were, everybody sort of spread all over the place. So it was like, well, what's Char doing now? You know, I mean, that's sort of how it, how we sort of, you know, it's like, oh, what's so-and-so doing? What's so-and-so doing? And so, um, I, I think, I think my, you know, as my siblings I'm pretty and I, supportive, um, uh, my dad position of whatever you want to do, which is board kind of su supportive. Um, yeah. I mean, nobody was like, yeah, you can do it. <laughs> so, uh, really at all. <laughs> right. And do you think that that sort of unusual family upbringing influenced your writing later on? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. I mean, uh, I think, um, uh, yeah, I think, I think, uh, you know, being, you know, coming out of a, a really tumultuous family situation, I think there are a lot of complex relationships that I'm still mining, you know, as my siblings and I grow older and, and, uh, you know, continue to reckon with, with all of the family mess. Um, yeah, that's certainly contributed to, to, to the work, you know, so it's, it's funny, you know, you're as a, as a, you know, as a 20 something year old, you know, I was like, I don't, I don't have any, there's no complexity to my family, to mine. <laughs> you don't really, you don't really think it's complex until you start to get a little older and you're like, wow, that's really, really, really complex. So, yeah. Right. And how did the decision come to move to New York? And what was that sort of process like? Well, I, so I was in San Francisco, which was a sort of a, back then, I mean, I, you know, it was a great city then. And, and um, I had, I had grown up, I'd grown up in the suburbs of Southern California and then, and then junior high and high school in Colorado, uh, Boulder, Colorado. And uh, I moved to, when I went to San Francisco, I loved it as a city. And then I had a girlfriend at the time who had started college in New York. And so I visited New York city for the first time. And I just thought like, I just thought like, man, I, I have to, I have to be here. I mean, it was a terrible time in the city, like 1991. It's like murders spiked at something wow. like 600 that year. I mean, it was horrible city. I mean, it was, you know, but I, I fell in love with it. And, and so when I was graduating, um, I thought, well, you know, for an actor, because I was still calling myself an actor, there are only two places to be. There's LA or New York. And I thought, you know, I'm probably not going to, I'm probably going to be not working as an actor. And if that was the case, I wanted to be in this place, in this city with, with life and stories and sophistication and that wasn't all about the business. 
Right, right. And were there either mentors you had or existing playwrights who you just sort of looked up to or? Well, this was actually an, this was an issue of mine, uh, which is finally sort of starting to be resolved a little bit. You know, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I, I didn't have a degree. And so I, 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 here I was in New York and I was waiting tables and I didn't have a degree and I was writing and I probably wasn't writing very well. And I, I knew that I should probably go to an MFA program, but I didn't have a bachelor's degree. So in order to even apply to an MFA program, I would have had to go, uh, whatever, finish out three more years of school <laughs> just to get a bachelor's so I could apply to a master's program and probably get rejected. So I didn't, I didn't do that. I mean, I couldn't, I, I sort of like sent a couple, I applied a couple of times to Juilliard and was like, I think I was like pre-rejected. Like, like I got to the mailbox and I was like, there's already a rejection letter in there. And so, and so I, 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 I mean, this comes around to the issue of, of peers and, and mentors, which is that I've, I've always felt, I've always felt, um, you know, I've always missed the fact that I, I, I didn't go to, a writing grad program with other writers and with act, sorry, with directors, with up and coming directors cutting their teeth. You know, I mean, what happens is these classes, you know, Juilliard and Yale and, you know, everywhere, you know, they, they, they all come up together and they're all part of the community. And so, so I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't have that graduating class to depend on. So uh, yeah, I mean, now I, I it was really only once I once I started um, strangely working in television that I <laughs> I started meeting a lot of, uh, of like the greatest playwrights working today. I mean, I I when I was first hired on um, the Affair, uh, Showtime's The Affair, uh, David Henry Wong was in the writers' room. I spent three years in like you know getting paid to take a master class with Den Henry David Wong and. Of course, Sarah Treem. I mean, all these like amazing writers. Um, and that was really the first time that I started feeling like I had, you know, peers and 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 mentors. But I, I that's been a real absence in my life. Right. And were you able to sort of sustain yourself solely as a writer in those early times in New York, or were you doing no, other kind of things? No. <laughs> no. No. I, I I was a waiter for eight years. Um, I, when I turned 30, I was still waiting tables at Gotham Bar and Grill. Um, uh, and which is where also I met my wife. I waited on her. I was a waiter. I was her waiter. Um, <laughs> and um, and things were going terribly. I was really depressed. And I was living in Hell's Kitchen on the ground floor facing the street um, on 48th Street. It was it just the thing. I was not making good choices. and And I finally was able to... I was finally able to transition out of waiting tables by um, I, I put this sort of like emergency <laughs> email together to everyone I knew saying, just, I, had known, I had known somebody who was a copywriter. And I said, like, I need to get out of the restaurant business. Maybe I can write copy. And so I put, I just put this, this email out and a friend of a friend was running the copywriting department at J Crew, And so I interviewed and it took about th like three months after I interviewed, I was very depressed because I interviewed, I thought it was great. And, and then I thought I didn't get it. And I went back to waiting tables about three months after I interviewed, I got hired at J crew. And, and so that changed my life, like moving into the corporate world. 
because you can you can see that you know you can see at a certain point as you get older that you have a diminishing opportunity set right uh, I mean, sooner or later, I was going to age out of being able to get any corporate job at all. And my the only thing I would be good for is waiting tables or maybe managing a restaurant. And I'd be stuck in the restaurant business. And so I was I was very lucky to be able to jump over to to J. Crew and 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 then I started a career. I mean, I just as I was writing plays, I was also <laughs> building a career as an advertising, a fashion advertising copywriter. So over, I spent 15 years doing it. I went from J. Crew to Coach to Ralph Lauren to Ann Taylor to um, a company called White House Black Market. Uh, and as I was doing that, um, I mean, A, at least I was working with language all day long, you know, and I, I do think copywriting really helped my playwriting skills. You know, you learn, you know, you start to learn the sort of technical aspects of putting a sentence together, you know, what makes it bright, what makes it sharp, how to, how to, you know, really compact the thought, how to, you know, all of this stuff that, that was, I could totally nerd out on. Um, uh, so yeah, I just, I, 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 I was getting up really early because my wife and I had kids and I was, I wound up, I started getting up at 5am to work before the family was up. And then I would, commute into the city um and work in advertising and then commute back and then you know right at night uh so that went on forever i mean that was i uh, look i mean i finally i finally got my play um the other place was produced uh at mcc theater with laurie metcalf and joe mantello and and that was just a, obviously a huge deal for me um uh and that's when i was 40 uh, and then even then, even then I was still working my nine to five job because you, you don't make any money in theater. You really don't. And um, so, yeah, so I, I mean, I had this like just this incredible couple of years where I had the other place at MCC theater. I had um, I had then the other place moved to Manhattan Theater Club. Then I had the Snow Geese and then Annapurna was produced and so it was just like this, this, this sort of big chunk of, of production happening. And I was still working my nine to five job because even if you get a play on Broadway, which was, it was a really just exceptional experience, uh, you know, you're not going to get produced on Broadway every year. So, uh, you, so there was at a certain point I was like, when, when do I, <laughs> when do I get to work as a writer? Like, uh, but so it was, it was really, it was only after I was hired um, on Showtime's The Affair that I finally started making a living as a writer. And I think then I was, uh, I was 44. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a, it was a long, long, long road. Right. So, yeah. And what do you think this sort of art is to effective copywriting for? <laughs> That's a good question. I do think there's an art to effective copywriting. I think it's, I think it, um, I think it should be smart, humorous, um, um, you know, attention grabbing. I think, uh, um, yeah, I think, I think to, to say is, to say as much as you can with as few words as possible is key. 
And so within that, I think you just have to be pretty cheeky, you know? Um, yeah, it's the big thing. And then there's another thing too, which is which is that like as a as a copywriter, you're also you're also sort of like, you know, you're sort of the gatekeeper of the voice of the brand. And so you you determine with the exact I mean, what's cool about it is that like in a lot of ways, you're sort of like the tail that wags the dog. You're not an executive, you're not the president of the company, but they're but they're relying on you to to maintain the voice of the of the the brand through the website and all this stuff. And it gets pretty wonky, but uh, but I think a I think it's, I think it's about, really, it's about, I say this very non-concisely, I think it's about being concise. <laughs> right. And so how did it come to be that the other place was produced off Broadway? How did that? Well, I had, I had worked for a long time on the play and I, I couldn't find my way into it. I mean, when I was finally ready to have some readings, um, I think the very first reading I had was at, um, uh was it at the lark um it was so it was uh, it, immediately it seemed to really grab people emotionally and i thought like you know i think there's very obviously there's something here that is working and and my agent just submitted it to mcc theater to the guys at mcc and <laughs> and they they gave it a first reading <laughs> They gave it a first reading and I thought it went really well, but like right away, the late Bob Lupone, who I just loved, got up and just destroyed it. He just <laughs> got up and just destroyed it, you know, in the way that he does, you know. <laughs> and I called my agent and I was like, you know, I think if the play that Bob wants is not the play that I wrote, so so it's fine. It's just not going to happen. Um, but they, but they called and, and gave me, you know, had a long talking to with me and, and I did, I did another draft and did another reading and Bob destroyed it much less. And <laughs> so by the time we did the third, we did a third reading. So I really, I workshopped it with them over the course of the year, although they weren't calling it a workshop. It was just sort of like, Hey, maybe we could do another reading. So, uh, by the third reading, by the third reading, Lori Metcalf was in town on a show and, uh, she, she did the reading and I was really upset because there was a giant snowstorm and I couldn't make it down to the city. All the trains were stalled and I, and I, I was sort of devastated. Um, and after she did the reading of the play, MCC decided that they wanted to do it. And, and then they, and then they, they went to, they had conversations with Joe, with Joe Mantello and Joe and Lori had, had worked together before and wanted it and are still working together. And, um, and they did one more reading. Joe came and uh, he decided he wanted to direct it. So it just was really transformative. Uh, and what were some of the changes that were made in the process of those readings? Sort of. Well, well, it was really funny. Um, well, the first, the first, the big change was that the play was originally two acts. So following those readings, Joe and I had a long conversation, one, one sort of like very cold winter day. Uh, and, and he's a great dramaturg. He's just great with structure, great with moments on the page. And so, so from there it was like, you know, he was like, you know, I think this is one act. I think I had two scenes that had a similar action. You know, I think, and he was like, I think these two scenes are one scene and they're over here. I mean, we just did some, some pretty strong dramaturgy. Um, that was the big thing, you know, there, I did this funny thing because Bob, when, when Bob Lupone tore the play apart the very first time, 
he uh, he came back with his notes were like i just he's like i'm just not seeing the catharsis i'm like are you fucking kidding you're not seeing the catharsis she literally cries in her fake daughter's arms like that's she so i did this very i did this very i was very sly which was that i did do some work on that on the draft following the first reading but i did i did literally in bold in stage directions right this is it the moment <laughs> semicolon she cries and so like i think just that was enough for bob to go like wow that was a he got up right away. He's like, "Yeah, I really, I really heard that. Really heard that uh, that catharsis. You really got it." And I was like, "Well, I didn't actually change the words at all." Uh, so that was a little sly. Um, yeah, uh, but we, but but yeah, I mean, most of the the big changes really came once we started. Once we, once Joe, um, Joe and I started working on it um, closely. And how much of a say do you generally like to have in the casting of your plays? Uh, I like I do like to have a big say. I mean, I don't. Uh, uh, it, the casting gets tricky because you. It's definitely it's definitely a negotiation. It's it's a it's a back and forth. It always is. You know who thinks who thinks who might be great. You know, a theater all theaters producers. You know, need to cast the highest caliber, the highest watt star they can because, duh, ticket sales. You know, I mean, that's really what things rely on. Um, and so so I think there's there is a back and forth, which is, which is, you know, often the artistic director and, or the director will be saying, what about X bright wattage star? And you say, well, that would be amazing. I have deep respect for her. I don't think she's right. You know, so you sort of, you sort of have some, you have some back and forth. Um, I, I think ultimately I've been just extraordinary lucky in in casting, and I think the back and forth has has always worked. But um, but yeah, it's it's definitely a it's definitely a a negotiation, and that's that's where that's where you all sort of get to know your um, you all get to know each other as as negotiating artists, you know, for the first time. Right. And in writing this character of Juliana in, in the other place, what was the process like of getting into the head of someone who has so many sort of delusions about things and <laughs> deciding how clear to make it? And yeah, I think I think the um I think the big the most important thing for me, you know, the the big the big hat trick, I think, in that play is that is that it's an she's an unreliable narrator. And so you you know how does how does one how does one with dementia how does one with dementia tell their own story and and i think the the most important thing was that well the the story they're telling you is the story they believe <laughs> is the story they most believe um that was the most important thing was it was it to juliana these things are factual you know to juliana it's a fact that her husband is having an affair and leaving her. It's a fact that her daughter is alive. It's a fact, you know, there are all of these facts that her daughter is alive and has children and is married and is, you know, um, and and so, uh, you know, the 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 power, of course, the power, of course, is when when you discover at the same time that Juliana discovers that none of these things are true. Um, but I, I wanted I wanted very badly, you know, in order to in order to sell i mean i wanted her i wanted the tragedy of her to be the smartest one of the smartest people on earth you know who 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 
demands. Uh, I mean, that's the tragedy. Um, and also, and also, I thought, you know, the smarter I make her and the more sort of like derisively brilliant her humor is, the more we believe everything she says. And that was the most important thing is to is to is to buy the belief of the audience. And were you writing this play with sort of the intent of a Broadway transfer or how did that happen when? No, no, I, 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 uh, no, I, I, I mean, that part of it was just, just a, a, out of reach even to imagine. Um, I, I guess I don't ever write anything thinking anything's ever going to happen because it, because it, it, it usually it usually doesn't. I mean, it has been for me, but I still, I think I had like de several decades of like writing and writing and writing and nothing would happen. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a pessimist, um, when it comes to whether or not anybody's going to produce anything. Uh, and also, and also, um, you know, I, I, I just, you know, at that point, especially with the other place, I didn't have a career. I, I, there was, I, I was still writing essentially into the void and and it was very clear that like nobody's even gonna read anything. <laughs> you know? So so I think I think especially for the other place, there was a sense of abandonment of of like of like uh, who like I'm just gonna write what I most deeply want to write and and it's not gonna get produced anyway. So who fucking cares? Um and which probably helped the play, to tell you the truth, you know. Right. And what was it like to be involved in this sort of bigger commercial type production of that play? Well, I mean, that was superb. What was really superb about it was that was that we'd already done the play. You know, we already knew everything about the play. So we weren't we weren't moving into we weren't moving into, you know, a Broadway scenario with an with with an with an unknown entity. You know, we we knew how it worked. We knew the structure. We knew that it worked, you know. Lori had already really mastered the play. And so it was sort of about like, what new layers can she bring to it? Which, um, you know, especially in the casting of of Zoe, her daughter, uh, you know, Zoe Perry, who's brilliant. And, uh, it, you know, it was sort of like, okay, we know how it works. Can we, can we, can we bring even more nuance to it rather than that really hairy situation where you've got to play, <laughs> you got to play, you're going up in a couple of weeks you don't know what's going wrong with it. You don't know why it's wrong. It's not working. Uh, that's the nightmare scenario. But 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 because we knew so much about it going into the Manhattan Theater Club production, uh, it was it, we were it was it was a really wonderful process. Right. And then with that in mind of what you just said, what was it like to have the Snow Geese open on Broadway later that year, which I believe was the premiere that it was a premiere. And that's something I'm talking about. That was, that was very difficult. It was a very difficult process um, um, for a number of reasons. And, and I, I think ultimately, I think ultimately once we figured the play out, we were just kind of three weeks behind schedule. I think like if we'd had three more weeks of previews, I think things would have been different. Um, um, so it would, that was, that was definitely, that was definitely a play I think that could have used more time outside of the outside of the spotlight you know so so but i mean ultimately ultimately the draft that came out of that production i'm look i love the play i love that play i i love it deeply 
Um, and it was just, it was a, it was, there was a lot of pressure in that, in that production and, and it was, it was tough. It was tough. Right. And what was it like to collaborate to with Dan Sullivan, who's another great director? Uh, yeah, it was great. It was great. I mean, I think, I think everybody, you know, and Dan, Dan had worked with Mary Louise and, and had worked with the theater and, and I mean, Dan's, Dan's a, Dan's a great director. Yeah. Dan's a great director. So, so, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was intense. It's all intense when you have a, when you have a play, um, like I say, like rushing towards opening and, and everybody wants changes, you know, it's, everybody wants it to be shorter, wants this, you know, wants some moment to be a different moment. And I was managing a lot of different voices and opinions. Um, and I think that's what, that's what made it really tough. I think like when you, when you have a play and, and, and also like when you're running a television show too, you know, there's, a lot of your job is to manage people's fear. Um, and I didn't really realize that at that time, but everybody's afraid. Everybody's afraid. And and it it takes someone with some experience, which I didn't really have at the time, to be able to say, you know what? This is going to work. It's going to work this way. <laughs> and, and if we commit to this, it's going to work. You just have to trust me, you know? And, and um, but there were a, a lot of other entities involved who had more experience that, you know, there was, so I was, I was pulled in a million different directions on that one. Right. And a lot of your plays deal with war in some way, either sort of tangentially or directly, like Iris Fields and Six Years and oh. all others. And <laughs> Iris Fields? What, how did you dredge that one up? Well, that's um on. I think it's on the Wikipedia page. Oh my God, that's so partly, funny. but I don't even think I have. I don't even think I have a printed version of that play anymore. Maybe it'll be somewhere. <laughs> so, uh, what do you think sort of appeals to you about that theme of, of war? And yeah, you know, it sort of appeals to me less and less. I mean, I think I've sort of done my time with it, but but I think, I think there's a. Um, I am very interested. I'm often very interested in. I'm very interested in what happens to a society, especially American society. We're very good at this. When we're in con, when conflict forces us to lose our humanity, you know. I mean, I mean that's what was really big for me in the snow geese was that, I mean, we, we, we were just, you know, we were just coming from, I mean, there was still, I felt so much still in reaction to, um, to September 11th, you know, and, and I, I really wanted to speak to xenophobia in that play, you know, the, the persecution of, of the, of the German uncle played by Danny Burstein so beautifully, you know, I, I, I want, I sort of, there's when you set something historically, you have the benefit of using what we know about history as tension. I guess I should say that. And so and so then it becomes becomes very, very powerful, I think, when when these, you know, when this when this boy is cheerfully going off to war and you you just know he's not going to make it. You know, and so I think it's just sort of it just like adds an extra level of of tension and suspense and sorrow uh that that you know, can, for me, can, can really work, you know? I mean, I think, I think also I'm now old enough to have, to have lived through a couple of actions where you're like, 
we're obviously going to get, you know, we're obviously going to invade Iraq. It's obviously a terrible idea. People's lives are going to be ruined. Does nobody see this? I mean, I think that's why Cassandra is such an important character too. Does nobody see what is obviously going to happen here? And so I think that's, that's sort of where I, I keep returning to, you know, plays that have been around conflict, you know. And what is your sort of research process like for a play like that too, that's set in a specific time period? Yeah, I'll go really, I'll just go really, really deep. Uh, for something like The Snow Geese, especially, um, and what was the book? Oh, such a good book. Um, the Beauty and the Sorrow. Um, I mean, I just, I'll go super deep. I'll go, I'll go, you know, the New York Times has its time machine. You can go back, you can see like every issue of the New York Times they've ever, that's ever been in print online. So I will, I'll read the paper, I'll read the, the ads, I'll read everything around the time period that I think I'm setting it in. And and then go back and I'll sort of build industry and look at where the tensions are and, you know, what's the history of the family. And I'll go really super deep with like the, the trying to find the time and place that, that, that has the exists on the, the, the sort of the, 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 the sort of like razor edge of, 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 um, dramatic possibility, you know, of, of potential energy, we'll call it potential energy, you know, can we set everything up so that, so that we're, we're teetering on the edge for this family, you know, during this time period. So I, I will, I'll read everything I can get my hands on and sort of see. And as I'm reading, you know, I'm always sort of like, I'm like, is this, oh, is this a thing? Is this a, you know, is this a setting? Is this a character? Is this something I should be looking at and and follow all those different wormholes? And it's it's um it's I, I that's the the research is I really love the research, right? And another play with a historical basis, albeit a very different one, is the True. And what was your sort of research process like for that one in particular? Yeah. Well, that one was great. I, I I just you know, I I. I I sort of first read about Polly Noonan in that um, the Times had when when Kirsten Gillibrand had been elevated to senator. Um, the Times was sort of like, who is Kristen? <laughs> who is Kirsten Gillibrand? And so they did this. They they um, published this profile on uh, Gillibrand's grandmother, Polly Noonan, who they called the most powerful woman in Albany, and yet she was never elected to office. And she was well known as the confidant of of Mayor Erastus Corning, and I thought, who who is this person? And so I, I so I went I went I went pretty deep into as much as I could get about information I could get about Polly Noonan. There's not a lot in print about her. There's there's um um Paul Grandall's incredible book about about um Mayor Corning. Uh, really extensive biography. I I turned to that book and really I, I was really I was sort of looking at Polly Noonan's life to see where's where's the turning point. Like I say, you know, where's where's the moment of greatest where's the moment of greatest conflict? Where's the where's the turning point? And in that it was it was in 1974 when Dan O'Connell dies who was the head of the Democratic Party machine in Albany and thus all of New York State. And I thought, well, very obviously, very obviously it's the death of Dan O'Connell that, that, that is going to send tectonic ripples throughout this very tight-knit 
democratic machine society. And, and let me start digging in there to see where the battle lines are drawn. And I think I think if you don't really go super deep and break out a magnifying glass to look at the print and then the fine print and then read between the lines, you can miss that conflict. But but once I discovered that, it was like, oh, well, this is very obviously, very obviously it's around this primary, around this primary season. Very obviously this is the struggle. And very obviously this is where I can show, because what I really wanted to do was discover the how of Polly Noonan's power. How did she work? And I don't know if this is actually how she worked, but I'm pretty sure this is how she worked, was a behind the scenes wrestler of men, you know, so. Right. And what made you decide to sort of focus on a strong woman in, in this world rather than all the men who took up most of it, I would say? What was sort of interesting about that? dichotomy i just think i just think women in particular and especially women of power are so much more complicated they have so much it's such a difficult balancing act you know polly noonan polly noonan acted like a man and and it was detrimental do you know i mean there's there's so much there's so much nuance that powerful women have to wade through and and for me that's fascinating and for me um, you know, I think, I think sort of digging up that character's internal life and, and stressors and conflicts and how does this, how does this powerful woman, you know, engage in a marriage in the seventies was, was fascinating to me. I think there's, I think there's just so much more, uh, and, and I, also there is, there's like, there's a different emotionality with, with with women that that I think is, I mean, I I love writing emotional male characters too. It's all about the emotion, but um, but there's there's like there's a different existential threat I think for for powerful female characters. You know, it's 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 not just it's not just what they do; it's how they're perceived, and and that's sort of like an echo chamber that goes on and on and on and on. You know, uh, and they're always they're always they're almost always perceived, um incorrectly um and so i wanted to mind that too you know and so even with all of this extensive research that you do and that you did for that play how do you decide when or if to alter little bits of the truth just for sake of yeah yeah look i mean ultimately look uh, this i mean the true wasn't a biography you know and and it, and, and i think and i think that's what i have to say is that it's 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 not a biography. If it were, I feel like if it were, it would be like dreadfully boring. Number <laughs> one. Um, and, and number two, at a certain point, there is no such thing as truth. At a certain point, you can all say, oh, well, they, the two of them, you know, the two of them were in the room for three hours discussing X. And when they came out, Y was decided. Yeah, you can say that. Even somebody can even relay what that conversation was. But if you actually put it down into dialogue, you have, there's a certain point where you have to just start making it up. And then you have to start giving yourself permission to making it up. And, and you try to stick to the large facts. Um, and I always have my dramatic, I always have my theories, you know, I always, I always have my theories at working with, working with um, historical figures, you know, that, that I sort of say, well, you know, they, 
they did say this. <laughs> they did say this to this person. What could this possibly mean? Thus, what is their relationship? I mean, you sort of, you, you sort of, you have to sort of like jump over the divide into into dialogue, and and then you're and then you're committed. I think you know. Right, and I'd be curious to know too. More general question: How much do you pay attention to the like critical response to your work? Oh, I do. Unfortunately, I know a lot of people who say they don't read reviews, but I do. I do. I man, I've gotten kicked in the balls so much. It's fucking awful. And uh, uh, you know, it's like I think I mean a lot of it too is that is that I read reviews because once the play is opened, it's almost like I want to see how my property is gonna do. How's it gonna how's it gonna do? Is anybody gonna what's gonna happen? <laughs> what's gonna happen? How's this gonna play out? Can I can I I want as many productions as possible? You know, and so and so I think especially with reviews around premieres it, it can make a difference it can make a difference through the run of the show um so uh, unfortunately i do pay attention to reviews i don't let them alter anything because fuck them i mean i can't there's nothing pardon me <laughs> but there's this old french phrase fuck them there's but there's also because like you can't you can't do anything about it you know i mean you are the i am the writer i am and uh and um this is the play I wrote. <laughs> uh, within that, um, you know, I I I hope somebody I hope somebody understands it, and often they don't, uh, and so I don't know. You know, we all I mean, we all have these we all have these horrible relationships with you know with reviews and do you read them? Do you not? You know, but um, I think especially I do have to say for theater. My wife says, and I think she's right about this, that like there's an irony that the the art form that is most difficult to do, that takes the longest to accomplish, that makes the least amount of money, should also have the most vicious reviewers. Um, so it's it sucks. It sucks. Right. And many of your plays, including um, Pictures from Home, the most recent one, are intermissionless, whether, and even Pictures from Home is a little longer than normal intermissions. Yeah, yeah. And what do you sort of prefer about that format of not giving the audience a break? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> not giving the audience a break. Yeah, no, uh, um, I, I look, we are, we are definitely moving into an intermissionless world. I think that's sort of the state of the business right now. I, I do think, um, Look, I think like I love Arthur Miller. Ugh, three acts. I just think like three Arthur Miller acts. Just too, this is just too long. I don't want to be that guy, but it's just too much. I think I think right now, if you're going to if you're going to build two acts, God help you if you build three acts. You really have to have a you have to have a reason. And I mean, I think I mean there's always a three act structure, even if you're not giving, even if you're not giving intermission, you're still working. I think the human animal is attuned to we we all work in a three act structure. That's how we respond, you know, symphonically. Anything, any piece of music, anything, you'll you'll find a three act in there. And so, so I, I think a lot of it is. I think a lot of it is. For me, do I? Do I have more to say on this <laughs> here? Can I, for me, often pushing into close to two hours, I feel like there's, I feel like you're, you're, you're 
you be, one begins mining mining something two or three times you know versus versus is there is it better to have some economy in this in this sort of first movement so that you're not wearing your audience out so you can you know i mean it just sort of gets technical but yeah i mean i think i think for me there just has to be a really big why to have to have to have an, an intermission an act break for sure having worked with so many of these great actresses like Laurie Metcalf and Evie Falco and all that do you have certain voices in mind now when you write do you I sometimes do it can get really dangerous it can get really dangerous because you um it's it's really rare that that you know even even actors who you know you love them they love you you intend to work together it's it's really rare that that your play is going to be available at a moment when they are available in their career. So, um, yeah, I, so I, I generally don't, I mean, there's, there's definitely like, there's definitely a voice in my head saying like, I would like to write another play for Edie. I would like to write another play for Laurie. And I think in those cases, when I finish whatever those plays are, I will definitely go right to them first um, you know, to see if it's for them. And then, but then a lot of times, you know, it's not for them or they don't have the schedule or, you know, you, it's, it's, it's really, it's really rare that the person you're writing for is, is, is going to work out for you, you know? Um, and I also like, I also like a character to stand on its, on its own without, without envisioning, without envisioning somebody else, you know, it's, it's, they will come in, they're great actors. They will come in and step into it and embody it for you. So. And have you had ideas for plays that you started writing, but eventually decided wouldn't make a good play? <laughs> no, yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. I have, I have, I'm counting the plays. I've got five plays on my desktop right now. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. So, some, uh, like some will sort of make the cut. Some won't. I mean, I'll sort of, I'll write, I'll get 10, 15, sometimes 20, 25 pages into something. And I'll be like, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, either I don't know if I can find it. I don't know what's important about it. I can't see the ending. Um, yeah, I think it it really has to pass a rigorous test for me now. I think when I was younger, I would sort of be like, oh my God, I have an idea and I would bang that idea out. But I, I think now there, there are, for me, there are a lot of, there are a lot of, um, a lot of circumstances that have to be right. You know, I mean, it, I think we all have to say, why is this important? Why do I care? Why do I care as a writer? Why does an audience care? Why am I asking an audience to sit here for an hour and a half, an hour, 45 minutes and 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 be exposed to this? What's important to it? To to what's important, what's important in it for a human, you know? Um, so that's that's what I that's what I look for. Um I also I also look for I also look for for a new structure or a new i think like well you know the world doesn't need the world doesn't need another another play about six people in a country house <laughs> which i've written you know but but like but like okay i don't need to do that like there are certain formats like i don't need to do that again or or i i don't think the world really needs can bear that or or it's not impactful or it's 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 not a piece that that for me as somebody else can do it but it's not it's not a piece that it's not a it's there's not it doesn't sort of like 
shimmer with some sort of newness in terms of structure or place, you know, and uh, uh, so I guess that's what I look for. But yeah, I do, I do start, I do abandon plays all the time. Yeah. Right. And um, I'd be curious to ask how the idea came about for Annapurna, the play we were. Oh, yeah. Well, I, so I had a, um, I had a theater professor whose husband was dying of emphysema and they moved down to Florida, actually where Iris Fields is produced. They moved down to um, to Key West together. And there was, there was something about the relationship. I mean, they knew that Don was dying and he had the, he was hooked up to his air tank and, you know, they had had some, you know, sort of a tumultuous relationship at, at certain points and, and they were prickly and, and yet they loved each other deeply. And, and in every move, there was this, there was this sort of like knowledge of his mortality. And so I, I wanted to write a play about them, but I mean, the play is not about them. Um, but then I, I read, there was, there was this great article in the times about estranged partners who estranged husbands and wives often who, when one of the couple of the estranged couple is ill, the other will return to care for them. And so I was really moved by that. And I, I wanted very much, I, I thought maybe that's, that's probably where I want, where I want this play to live is, is, you know, um, is in that, in, in that world, you know, two people who haven't seen each other in 20 years, who still love each other coming back together when he's ill. Um, and then, um, my brother at the time was doing, he was doing a lot of sort of like small mountaineering, but sort of, but a lot of, um, backcountry snowboard, snowboarding, which he, he still does. And, uh, and he had given me, he had given me the memoir Annapurna by Maurice Herzog, uh, which is a harrowing, harrowing tale. And I thought, I thought like, there's my, there's the metaphor somehow. There's the metaphors is embarking on this labor together of, of love, of climbing the mountain um, roped together, you know, um, in, in which at the end of it, you are absolutely ruined. <laughs> I, I thought, and so I thought that the, 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 there's, there's the metaphor for this couple. Sometimes like a lot of couples I know too, or, or, or maybe you're not ruined, but by God, when you come down, you've, 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 you're a different person. And I feel like, I, I felt like that was like, that was a metaphor for, for, for that play it was as soon as I read that book and sort of put that metaphor together with this couple that I wanted to write about, it sort of sparked and became the play. Right. And when you have these real life people who inspire characters for you, have you ever had them come see the play and do they sort of recognize themselves in it or? Well, that's a good question. I mean, there was a lot of um, drama around with the um, members of the Gillibrand family around the true, uh, because there's still there's still a lot of controversy over the relationship between between Polly Noonan and Erastus Corning. There were always accusations of of affairs and stuff like that. Um, so, um, so, and definitely having that play produced in Albany was a big deal because like a lot of people came to see it who knew Polly Noonan, you know, and, and, and they hold that, that particular political story really close to their hearts. So uh, that was, I was very nervous about that. Um, 
but then for for pictures from home, I worked really closely with with Larry's Larry Sultan's widow, Kelly Sultan, who I love, and she's a, a dear friend now. And and um, um, you know, so much of of my process with Kelly was getting Larry right and getting Larry's artistic process right and getting his getting his parents right. And so I I have there's there's a lot of I take a lot of uh, feel a lot of gratif I feel very gratified that um that they that Kelly's family and and often mem members of Larry's family have come away saying like yeah that was that was them uh I I love that I love that very much ah uh, that is great and one of the interesting things in pictures from home is that Larry essentially leaves his wife and kids at home every weekend to go out and visit his parents and how did you find that they sort of felt about that and well it was interesting because because Kelly Kelly was really clear and I loved I love getting this perspective you know this isn't a this isn't a story about a guy who I mean Kelly Kelly was really supportive of his project he was doing this project before they even met you know um so she was always supportive of him of him continuing it so but then it was really funny because as I was writing the play, I, I, at first I was writing, you know, every weekend. And she's like, well, it wasn't every weekend. I was like, well, she's like, it was every couple of months. I was like, okay. And then she's like, well, sometimes it was twice a month. But then when it was twice a month, it would be like four day weekends, <laughs> you know, but it wasn't often that it was like every couple of months. So, but, so I sort of, I just turned, I turned that, I turned that into this sort of yeah, I, I that found its way into the dialogue between between Larry and Larry and Irv. And and I think and I think, you know, it became important for Irv to try to accuse Larry of abandoning his family somehow, which Larry was actually not doing. But I think it was, you know, I, I think a lot of it also is is, you know, in the play is Irv working out his own guilt or justifying his own his own life um, um, through you know accusing Larry of something that he may feel accused of himself you know which is a you know Irv had spent three weeks out of the month on the road when he was a salesman so um, yeah so it wasn't you know it was more like I think with everything with this play which I really like you know it's about it's about the 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 argument turns the argument turns into into perspective, <laughs> you know, the argument turns into, to you, it's once a week, but to me, it's actually once a month, but to her, it's once every, you know, like that's, and that's sort of like where the, the rough and tumble, um, personal moments come from. So. Right. And how did you first come across the photographs of Larry Salton? I was uh, speaking of being away from your family. I was, I was, uh, I was on set in Los Angeles for for a season of The Affair, and I was terribly lonely. And a friend of mine said, "Well, come to me, come with me to the this exhibit, to this retrospective at LA County Museum of Art, LACMA." And it was the Larry Sultan uh, retrospective, and and I and I had recognized some of his photographs because they're you know they're some are so iconic. Um, but then sort of going to the pictures, pictures from home gallery, um, A, the pictures are extraordinary. And B, Kelly had really pushed to, Kelly Sultan had really pushed to have chunks of dialogue between, between Irv and Larry printed on the wall. And there, and there I really thought, you know, I really thought who, 
who are these people? What is this relationship? And I immediately bought the book and, and started looking into it. And I just thought, and, and my friend who took me said, I think this is a play. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. How do you make a book of photographs into a play? But um, um, yeah, that's how it started. And how did you come to collaborate with Bartlett Cher on this piece too? Bart came in through Jeffrey Richards. Um, so my agent had sent Jeffrey the play and he read it and luckily for me immediately wanted to do it and and was was floating different directors and 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 uh yeah he was bart was you know jeffrey immediately sent it to bart to sort of see what he thought and and then it was sort of a long process we had a couple of readings uh we had some conversations bart and i didn't know each other very well at the time um yeah really to see a is this for him? Um, B does he have it in his schedule? And and he eventually found that it really was, and 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 he did. So it 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 worked out. It worked out. Right. And were some of these readings pre-pandemic, or did this all sort of start? Happening? This was all post-pandemic. This was all I had. I actually, the Alley Theater in Houston had done a workshop of the play um, at their All New Festival in. This was January of 2020. I mean, we were just hearing word of like the strange illness, and they they decided they wanted to they wanted to, to do the world premiere, the fall of 2020, fall of 2020. Uh, yeah, I think so. And they were really we were all really excited, and then the pandemic hit, and you know, of course, everything just went haywire. So this was so when I first met Jeffrey Richards about this play, we both had just been vaccinated for a couple of weeks and, and we were still wearing our masks and all of that. So it was, it was just as the pandemic was, was cooling off. Um, and of course there was a big calculus there. We don't know what theater's gonna be like. We don't know if audiences will come back. We don't know if we can find a theater. And I think he's obviously a master at that kind of calculus. Right. And what has it been like to work with these extraordinary actors too, with Nathan Lane and incredible, incredible. I, I mean, I've worked with Danny before, and I just love, I love Danny, and I just, I came to just love Nathan and Zoe also as much. I mean, they're just, they're fantastic. They're just, they're just. It's such a special experience. It's it's such a special experience to work with these three actors who together have done have been responsible for so much extraordinary work. Um, and A, they just know what the fuck they're doing. Uh, I mean, yeah, when Nathan is like, when Nathan is like, uh, <laughs> Nathan is like, uh, I, I, I gotta tell you, <laughs> we all thought, thought this was funny in rehearsal and I, I can't find the funny now. <laughs> it's like, so, it's like, so you listen to that. You're like, okay, if Nathan Lane can't make it funny, of all people, we gotta we gotta cut it, you know. So 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 I mean that part of it is is really amazing. Um, uh, but then also, I especially just love being a fly on the wall and and sitting in the back of the room and and listening to these incredible actors just tell stories, <laughs> tell stories from, you know, from past productions or or from being on talk shows or whatever. And it's it's just an absolute delight. Ah, uh, that is great. Yeah. And what was the decision-making process like, I'd be curious to know, around the way to sort of show these pictures as part of the play? Because it would seem sort of impossible to do it without them. Yeah, it, it is impossible to do it without them. I mean, they're, they are, they're, direct, they're referenced in the script and I build the structure around the depictions. So 
Uh, you know, there wasn't, it was, what's exceptional about, I mean, there's so much exceptional about Bart. He really is brilliant. And, 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 uh, it was sort of, in a lot of ways, the, 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 the pictures, um, you know, projecting the, the projections really began to determine, you know, the, almost like this like the the structure of depiction on stage you know because because there are these pictures that we can see and they can see and we can all argue about in 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 real time you know because we're constantly breaking the fourth wall um um it, it just it it it's sort of it stopped being about the how of it and more about just the fact of it well we're going to were they're going to be Bart was Bart thought you know they're just going to be as large as they possibly can they're just going to be as impactful as they possibly can and and that was exactly that was exact for me that was exactly the right it was the most powerful choice you know to see to see this close up of of Gene in the garage you know forty feet high you know these sort of Godhead figures hovering above Larry um, was really really determined the impact of of the play right and with this sort of central question of the play being why is he doing this whole project what was the process like of figuring out sort of your answer to that his answer to that and yeah that's a good question uh, it was really key to have kelly sultan um on my on my side to to tell me about his process and 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 how he worked and and how he felt about the work and 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 all of that um you know and especially to hear a lot of stories about Irv and Jean that that are not in pictures from home so so that that became that became really that became really crucial um um you know it became what for me became obvious and which it surprises me that it's not in larry doesn't doesn't reference it in the book at all it became really obvious that this was in uh, an oedipal struggle <laughs> you know between the father and the son over ownership of image of the mother you know and ownership of image of the family but it it very it very clearly like once i started digging at that theory especially especially with a lot of the the family stories the 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 male the male power struggle lifted out and and as i started you know reexamining the book again and again with that um you know through through that lens sorry for the pun um the the photographs began to speak to that struggle and and also larry's layout of the photographs began to in the book began to speak to that struggle in 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 a, a a, a very clear way to me narratively. Right. And what has the audience response been like for you so far? I imagine there must be many people who relate to this play and great. It's been it's been really it's been exceptional. It's been I've I've had a lot of contact with a lot of people who who are very moved by it and 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 I think it it speaks to people intergenerationally and and you know the audience response has been has been really superb really really gratifying right 
And I'd be curious to know, too, what made you decide to sort of include the information about when the parents died and even when Larry tragically died, rather than just ending it with the book's publication or something like that? Yeah, I thought, I thought, you know, I thought that that the play, the book ultimately becoming a project about mortality and the play ultimately becoming a project about mortality. I wanted to, I wanted to bring it all the way to the end, you know, and, and, and it seemed, it seemed important, you know, I mean, I wanted to stay with, I wanted to just stay with them. And, and I wanted to know what happens in the end. I wanted us all to know what happens in the end. And of course, like there's never an end, you know, it keeps going and going and going, but, but, but to me, but to me, the end of the parents ultimately are the end of, well, I mean, that's not true. Only the end of Larry is the end of Larry's project because, because he would have been reassessing them for his entire life as we do with our parents. So I, I felt, I felt really strongly that, 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 that was that was the only end that could be possible you know was the was the end the sort of like the end that waits for all of us and i think that's 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 where the power is you know right and a play of yours that we haven't discussed yet is stupid kid you're oh. <laughs> man <laughs> and how did the idea for that i i i mean i love that play i wish we could get it done in new york um it's well. I mean, it's it's really about I'm 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 really I'm really interested in the just rottenness of the of the justice system and and especially in you know the and um, abuse of power and and the phenomenon of of coerced confession and um and I just and I just I just thought like the, like I I wanted I wanted to write about you know look, so many people in the justice system are people who have not even done stupid things, but who've just sort of like said stupid things or, or stupidly, you know, stupidly admitted to coercion or, or have allowed themselves to be coercion and it, it ruins their entire lives. And I just, I wanted, I wanted something that was about sort of like, it was about this, 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 you know, one false conviction destroying this entire family you know and 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 um and within that you know even more tragically the mother character in stupid kid needing to needing to begin to cut her son out of her own heart to justify the pain of not having him there again you know and then to so it's it's a very it's a very raw it's a very raw play it's a very funny play um yeah so I, I I hope there's I hope there's still some life and some life in that play yet right yeah I would love to see it in New York <laughs> that would be great and I'd love to ask too about a tv project that you did which was Halston for a few of the episodes and yeah yeah what, what was that process like of being in that writer's room well that process was that process was uh oh it was a long process I I I developed the structure of that and then pitched it for about four years. Wow, a long time. And then at the end of that project, at the end of that project, um, at the end of that project, we 
we were pitching it in person with Ewan McGregor in the room to networks, which is lovely. He's the loveliest gentleman on earth. He's just fantastic. Um, and everybody said no. And uh, Ryan Murphy had his overall with Netflix and decided he wanted to do it. Um, so I started a writer's room and I spent 20 weeks um, with these fantastic writers, um, you know, building six scripts for for the show. Originally, it was seven. Um, yeah, it was it was a it was a great it was a great process. It was a great process. Um, so that's all that's all I should say. <laughs> <laughs> I was asked. I was um, let's say the the process on Halston. We'll we'll say this. The, my process, my involvement with Halston ended the day that I turned in my final script. And that's all I'll say. Okay. Yes. And I believe you're working on a new show now too, this Generations. Generation, Generation was, uh, Generation was a, was a one season show for um, HBO Max. And that got me through, that got me through the pandemic. I was on set um, during the pandemic for, during, uh, for Generation, uh, which was crazy. Um, and then, so I'm on, I'm on two shows right now. I'm just finishing, uh, a, uh, an adaptation of Presumed Innocent with, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and David E. Kelly. It's, it's a partnership between David E. Kelly and Bad Robot and Apple. Uh, and then I'm, and then I'm working on another show, which I just, is just a hoot. It's called Palm Royale. Uh, this, the first season's already in the can. We're already sort of, we're, we're in the room for, for a possible season two, but it's with, uh, it's with, um, uh, Kristen Wiig and Laura Dern and Allison Janney and, um, wow. Leslie Bibb. And it's just, it's just a hoot. It's delightful. It's, uh, it's set in, uh, Palm Beach in 1969 and Kristen Wiig is a, is a scamming social climber. And it's just, it's fa it's fantastic. Abe Sylvia is the showrunner. My friend Abe Sylvia, he's brilliant. It's just it's a it's it's a delight to be working on that show. Oh yeah, that does sound great. Yeah, yeah. I'd be curious to know too. Where do you think that your sort of sense of humor and writing comes from? Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I think I think I I think I've uh, you know I think I've always been pretty irreverent. I I think I accidentally you know push a little too far all the time because I just get bored. Um, but it also, it also comes from, it also comes from, uh, I, I think things are, I think things are, I think things are funnier when you most need a laugh and you most need a laugh when things are horrible. So I think that's, I think that's kind of where it comes from is, 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 um, uh, you know, I would call it probably more, more likely gallows humor than anything else. And has there been a play or a subject that you felt was ultimately sort of too much for audiences or? Uh, that I've written? Right, right. Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe stupid, maybe stupid kid. I'm not sure. I don't know. It's still really funny. Um, I mean, I had some horrible moments in there. I, I haven't pushed, I haven't, I, I think it just, look, I, I think some, I think some parts of my plays are not great with some audiences oh listen i i wrote a really bad play called sunlight and um and i i think that's it was like ill-conceived and not a great play and so that that probably pushed it too much for audiences i mean it was sort of like it was about the torture debate on campus between uh between a uh 
a law professor and his mentor. Um, so, and I think, I think, I think that subject was a little dated and, and I, I, I was also a much younger writer, so I didn't, I didn't execute it particularly well, which is why you've never heard of that play. <laughs> and do you have um, new ideas for plays or new plays that you're working on now? I do. Um, you know, I'm still in the why stage. You know, I like I have one where I'm looking up at my at my board. Uh, I I I don't know. I mean, yeah, I I do. Yeah, I do. I mean, I have a play about a young woman who, a young urbanite um, atheist who, uh, um, like is visited by the angel Gabriel and realizes she's pregnant. I, I don't know if that's going anywhere. See, like, then I'm like, well, why? What's, what is it? What is it about that? Where's that going? I've got another, I've got another family drama that's sort of like kind of back to like a, like a one, like a one apartment kind of drama. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm like, why, why do that one either? It's like, it's a, it's a, you know, it's sort of like a toxic relationship um, in a family and there's an interloper and that's sort of fun too. I mean, none of this is going to make any sense, but yeah, I've got things that I'm 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 still in the like I I've got like a five projects where I'm like I'm I'm in the like who cares stage. <laughs> so and so then the final question I'd love to ask is with such a great career, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? As a writer? Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. Um uh, the oh Honestly, the only advice I have is to write. That it's that's the only answer I have. I think there's there's a very clear it it can it's both devastating and incredibly clean answer about a writing career, which is that a great script will go somewhere. And if you don't have a great script, nothing's, you know, the only thing that matters is the script. And so that's why I say write. I, I mean, you have to write, you have to finish, and then you have to assess. <laughs> but hopefully your assessment, hopefully you're assessing as you're writing and you're going back to the who cares, who gives a shit, why should anybody look at this? But but again, I think I think young writers will figure it out. Um, but if you're not writing, you, you're not, if you're not writing, you don't have anything, you know, so you have to write, you have to make the time to write, you have to write every day. Um, you know, even if you, even if you don't have an idea, go open up your laptop and sit there in front of it for an hour, do that every single day without fail. And, and, um, that's my only advice. You have to write. Right. Well, that is great advice. And thank you so much for doing this. It's been such a pleasure to. Likewise. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by Paulo Sant. Paulo Sant is currently starring as Lance Dubois in Broadway's smash hit and Juliet. And you may also know him from his previous appearances on Broadway in South Pacific opposite Kelly O'Hara and in Chicago opposite Erica Jane and Anna Villafagne. He is also a veteran performer of opera stages, including the Met Opera, where he sang in productions of Die Fledermaus and Madama Butterfly. You won't want to miss that conversation, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.